guess last week when I was looking at the first part of Peter's sermon, we were looking at it in the context of the man that was healed. And uh, his first part of the sermon says, you guys know that uh, Jesus, uh, whom you sent to the cross, Pilate wanted to set him free, but you were the ones that, you know, were uh, just... I was going to say I was going to say stupid, but they, they, you, know, they you were the ones that you, you were the ones that continued to pressure until you thought you had gotten rid of him. God raised him from the dead, and that's what this miracle is all about. Jesus is alive. Here's the proof. You can see that in His name, not because of who we are or our piety, but because of Jesus who has the authority to do these things, that's why this man's life has been altered and changed. Now, that's the first part of his sermon. Now we're coming into the second part. And uh, I titled it Times of Refreshing because back in the beginning of the mission agency that we started in Germany, uh, it's called Globe Mission. If you want to go to the website, it's in both German and English, so you can actually read about it. <laughs> in either language, but the agency that we started, we, we had a desire from the beginning to uh, encourage missionaries. We had been on the fields. Uh, I went to Europe in 1977, and we started this work in 19 years. Um, we had our first retreat where we invited missionaries to come. I, I believe the first one was in... Um, 1980, 1993, 94, somewhere in there. I can't remember without going back and looking through my old diaries. <laughs> but we had this wonderful event. We invited, and surprisingly enough, he came, the founder and director of Youth with a Mission, Lauren Cunningham. And he's normally a very busy man, travels all over the world, has a university out in Hawaii, and uh, several of our missionaries were working with Youth with a Mission in different parts of the world. And so it was just a real encouragement. We had about 70 or 80 missionaries that showed up in this hotel around Christmas. And we just had a fabulous time. We had uh, a speaker. We had uh, some great worship. And we had uh, a lot of free time. Jan was brilliant at organizing gifts. And, uh, you know, she would, during mealtimes, people had to check under their seats whether they got a gift or they could come and pick a present. And I don't know, it was just, we just had a lot of fun. And we thought that this was really important for missionaries, especially who had been laboring hard under, you know, real difficult circumstances, just to let them know they were appreciated. And we went to a lot of churches and raised the money for this so that we could just bless the missionaries. It was our beginning and start for what ended up being called member care. How do you take care of your members who are on the field? It's become a major portion and activity of the mission agency today. Um, you know, missionaries go through the same problems we have, whether they're financial difficulties or marital difficulties or... Um, deaths on the field or whatever. I mean, there's just a real need for, for there to be those who are available to counsel and care for the missionaries. And we picked up 
out of this particular scripture, that term, times of refreshing. And so we called our retreats times of refreshing. And we would invite our missionaries to come for times of refreshing. And we just talked about encouraging, encouraging things. Um, going back, however, and looking at this scripture in its context, as wonderful as that was, I think it did give us uh, a little taste of maybe, perhaps, of what God really intends, not just for missionaries, but for everybody. And the question that I have as I was looking at it is, what did God really intend to communicate to us with this term, times of refreshing? So we're going to take a look at the rest of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 and beginning in, uh, in verse 17. It says this, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. He's talking about that Jesus had died and raised again, even though Pilate wanted to set him free. So he's talking specifically about that act. And he says, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Um, it, it's fascinating for me to study the sermons in the scriptures. I, I think that both the sermon on Pentecost that he preached, this sermon, others that we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, uh, I, I probably need to go back and study them more and learn how to preach right. I, I just think that <laughs> I sit there and I watch the results of what seems to be a very simple, precise, concise sermon has incredible power. Now, I do understand that 
None of us were present at the time of the crucifixion. None of us were there to see Jesus carrying his cross. None of us were there when he breathed his last. None of us were there when they took him down and placed him in a tomb. None of us were there when he was raised from the dead and the tomb was empty. We weren't there. It happened a long time ago. The thing is that Jesus raised from the dead is still alive. And he will never, this is what it says in Romans, he will never die again. He is alive forevermore. His authority, his name still have the same power that they always had. Jesus Christ, it says in Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's the same. We used to sing a little chorus like that in England. He never changes. He's the same. I, I love that. It just We know that when we come to Jesus, he is the same Jesus of the Bible that we read here. He's not somebody else. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not just somebody that we have tried in our own minds to make him after our own image. He, he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the ruler of all time. He is the one who will judge both the quick and the dead. He is the one who is alive forevermore. He is the one who sits on the throne of God. He is the one that God intended to send to save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. I, I sit there looking at all of this and he turns, Peter turns and says, listen, everybody, I want you to understand that, that he is alive and he is doing these things. It has nothing to do with our piety, our strength, our authority. Don't look at us. Now, I, I know that there are some amazing people in the world and, and uh, there are people that God uses in powerful ways. I, I love that. Um, I also know that the gifts of God are without repentance. That means that he can give a gift to somebody and they can use that gift for good and still have evil in their heart. That's sad, isn't it? I mean, it's possible for somebody to stand, read the scriptures, and preach it, pray for the sick, and see them get healed, and still have a rotten character. It's possible. Because God doesn't repent of the gifts that he gives. Just because somebody has a wonderful gift doesn't mean that they're wonderful. <laughs> I, I try to explain it this way sometimes to, to folks. Let's say, Chris, you, you, you don't know me and I don't know you. Say we've never met before, right? And I come up to you and I just, out of, for some reason, give you a million dollars. What do you know about me? <laughs> what would you know about me? I mean, 
incredibly generous, <laughs> amazingly generous. I may be stupid, but <laughs> at least I'm generous. I mean, I, for whatever my purpose is, you don't know what my purpose is. You don't know what I see or what I understand. You don't know anything else other than I'm generous. What do we know about you and your character? Absolutely nothing. Just because somebody has received a gift from God means that we know that God is generous and gracious and kind, but we know nothing about the person who receives the gift. See, in this particular story, we know that the lame man was lame. So we have some idea of the difficulties in his life, and we do know that when he gets the gift of his healing, he has the potential for a new future. But we know nothing of what's going on in his heart and his mind. We know nothing of his motivations. We know nothing of his anger. We know nothing of how he criticized God or criticized his family. We don't know anything about the kind of person he is on the inside. And the same thing's true when Peter and John are standing in front of all these people. He's telling them, they're coming and saying, well, because you did this miracle, we saw it happen. You're the one that grabbed him by the hands. And when he stood up, his, his ankles were strengthened. You must be something marvelous. He's going, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't understand. This doesn't speak about us, this speaks about Jesus who was raised from the dead. That's who does this kind of thing. He picks people who don't deserve it and he gives them remarkable gifts. <laughs> now he turns from this amazing thing whereby out of just the goodness of God's heart because he spoke and quickened the faith of Peter and, and John that they raised this man and, and, and they said, we're giving this to you in the name of Jesus. Just because of that, we have an incredible opportunity for him to bring home the message that he wants to bring home. And he turns to them and he says, you did this to God's prophet. The one that has been known from the prophets in the past, beginning with Moses, Abraham, from Samuel onwards, he quotes them. He quotes from Genesis, he quotes from Exodus, he quotes from Samuel. He's starting at this point to say to them, God had a purpose and a plan long before you ever arrived on the scene. And you didn't know it, but God used you to accomplish his plan, knowing that the Christ must suffer and die. Why? Because he's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to take upon himself the thing the very thing that separates you from God. And the thing that separates you from God is murder. 
The thing that separates you from God is your selfishness. The thing that separates you from God is your greed to maintain your own religious uh, traditions that are contrary to the whole purposes of God that he tried to reveal to you through his prophets long ago. And you following your own ambition and the ambition of your rulers put to death this Jesus. Now, you know, I did title this Times of Refreshing. (laughs) I, I can't imagine at this point that they're feeling any kind of refreshment. As a matter of fact, when I start to think about encounters with God, to tell you the truth, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't primarily think of times of refreshment. <laughs> it's not the first thing that comes to mind. As a matter of fact, first thing that comes to mind probably uh, is something like respect, awe, even fear, being amazed, praise, wonder, speechlessness, astonishment, maybe to use a more modern term, I'm blown away. (laughs) Just awestruck. When I think about encountering Jesus, the words fail me. You, you just, I've had a couple of those experiences in my life. I just, I'm wondering why, God, why? Who, who am I to experience this? When it comes to encountering God, with sin in your life. <laughs> that, that's fearful. Now he comes to them and he says something that is quite astonishing. He says, I know that you acted in ignorance. I know you thought you were doing the right thing. You were not aware that you were actually part of God's plan. So you get a second go at this. You get another chance. You are ignorant, so now don't live in your ignorance. Now you need to change. And he calls on them Directly to repent. Now, repentance, we think, I don't know what you think. I I tend to think repentance means I start to feel sorry. I, I may start to cry because I see how it affects me. And my focus primarily in in being caught out in whatever deed it was that I did. that suddenly I've been exposed and I'm full of shame and guilt. And so in the presence, I I 
I want to say sorry, I didn't mean it, because I'm afraid of the consequences. And if we stop there, we do not enter into the purposes of God for our lives. Not that that's wrong, but he says to them, repent and return. He comes out specifically saying, repent of what you did. It was wrong. And return to the one who has a plan and a purpose in and through your life. Suddenly he's going to paint a much bigger picture than just me. He takes a look here and he's saying to them, listen, when you return, then your sins will be wiped away. That's number one. The first thing that happens when you return to Jesus is that there is this cleansing on the inside. I, I remember the day that I got up off my knees and my, my, I felt like I had taken a shower on the inside. The things that I couldn't get rid of, I knew were forgiven. That God had washed me clean. It, it was the most amazing realization that I could have possibly had. When you return, there is a change. Repentance is not just feeling sorry. There needs to be a change. And the change happens when Jesus enters in. You, you see, that he may send Jesus, in verse 20, the Christ appointed for you. He, he points out there are two aspects to this coming of Christ. The first one is, he comes to me now. And the second one is, when the fulfillment of all things has happened, he will return in final judgment. So that when we repent and we return to him, there's going to be not only the forgiveness of sins, there's going to be this coming of Jesus into my life. Why is that so critically important? Is it important because it makes me feel good? Is it important because I like it or I can sing new songs or I've got a new uh, jump to my step? No, it's important because I cannot change myself on the inside. I can't change my worldview. I can't change the way I perceive things. I can't change my self-centeredness. I can't change those things, but Jesus can. And when Jesus shows up in my life, he has both the power and the authority, like he healed the lame man, to change my heart and to change my mind. This is a critical aspect to becoming a Christian, is that it's not just that I think right, but my life has been transformed into the image of Jesus. It continues to be changed and transformed as Jesus continues to work in and through my life. Expanding my horizons, changing my thinking, changing my heart. See, this, this is critical to know that <coughs> when I return to the original that God had prepared for me, then I begin to understand that God's purposes, God's will, God's values, 
God's morals uh, as they are revealed in Scripture, his plan for my life and for the kingdom of God and my role in the kingdom of God are suddenly critical. They never were a part of my life before. (laughs) I could have cared less about what God's kingdom was like on earth. I wouldn't have cared for the Tikali people in Nepal. What do I care about folks who are dying of of a tsunami out in, in, in the Philippines, a typhoon? What do I care about all these things that are going on in Nigeria and other parts of the world? Something happens when Jesus shows up. And there is a difference in the way that we begin to perceive the world from God's perspective. There's a difference in the way we begin to perceive others from God's perspective. There's a major change when we return to that which the prophets of old began to prophesy. And suddenly I realized I am part of the big picture of what God is doing. I'm doing it just here in this little corner here with this little group of people, and God is doing something mighty as a lot of people do a lot of little things with small groups of people. And it happens all over the world, and it begins to swell into a movement that the world cannot contain and the devil cannot defeat. It has nothing to do with the governments of this world. And until I begin to see that my little bit here is critical because it's a part of the plan of God for all that he's doing, and as I fulfill what he's calling me to do, I'm a part of a much bigger event that's taking place. It's far greater than the the Southern Baptist movement. It's far greater than the church in the United States. It's far greater than anything that any one of us could be a part of. And to think that any one of us could be at the head of this and lead this other than Jesus is, is a terrible misconception. We who are changed by God began to fulfill his plan in the covenant that he made to Abraham that says, and through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he says, if you will come back to these people there, Peter says, if you will come back, then what's going to happen is that all that God spoke to our forefathers and the prophets and the covenants that he made will be fulfilled because you are the first fruits of that. You are the start of something that's going to grow. Now, we weren't there. We weren't there. But when he turns to them, he's saying to them, he says this, for you first... He's speaking to the people who condemned Jesus. And he says, for you first, God changed. That's incredible, isn't it? Suddenly, he raised up, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Who determines where the ways are wicked? The 
interesting question. In our society today, it's the majority. Whatever the majority says, that must be it. Whatever people think must be it. Whatever the opinions are of whatever people (laughs) are out there seems to be. But I want to tell you something. If God, who created us, says that this is immoral, then your opinion will not count on the judgment day. Your opinion is worthless in face of God's word. And to change and take a stand requires real conviction, both that this is true, so that's a faith stance, and it requires the presence of God within our hearts to be loving towards people who are wicked. See, Peter here is giving these wicked people. He's saying, your ways are wicked. He says, and God loves you, he's given you a chance. Repent and return, and this will happen to you. I, I, I'm sitting there looking at that. He, he, he also said in verse, in verse 22, 23 here, he says, It shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet, speaking of Jesus, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That, that's not nice language. I mean, he's being incredibly clear right there. I mean, that's an incredible statement. You do not heed this prophet. Your life is destroyed. And right in the middle of this strict and narrow and heavy discussion, deliberation about the presence of the resurrected one, about his chance that he gives you to repent and return, comes this little phrase. I I love it. Right in the middle of all of this stuff, he says, Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And he didn't say a time of refreshing. He's using the plural. In the middle of this hefty debate about sin and immorality and death and resurrection, wickedness and and the purpose of God and the what the prophets foretold, and and here it happened in front of your eyes, what we had all been hoping for long ago, and we're looking towards, and we missed it, and we were a part of, of his crucifixion. We were a part. Now we are partakers of those who see the results of his resurrection. Right in the middle of that, he says, time of refreshing. times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. You you know, I, I see in different statements, whether it's on Facebook or somewhere else, I see how 
people are getting weary, weary of COVID. We were talking with a group of people, and this one young man just got up and walked away. I, I said, something he said. He said, I'm just tired of hearing all this stuff about COVID. Can't take it anymore. Doesn't change the reality that we live in. He just couldn't stand to talk about it. The weariness that comes over a people where they're worn down, where grief has stricken many of us, where, where we struggle in the realities of the life that we're living. You see, we need time of refreshing. We don't need to just look under the seat and see whether we have a little ticket that says we get a prize. We, we don't just need, though it's always helpful to have a handful of flowers given to us. <laughs> we, we, we don't just need acts of kindness, though those do encourage. But we need the presence of the Lord. You see, the real refreshment that gives me the ability to overcome the grief, the struggles, the difficulties. Look at the life that they lived in under a foreign government. They, they, were, they, they, they were treated as trash. They were a small country. People that were rejected and considered of no value, mistreated by several different nations over their history, whether it was the Persians or the Babylonians or the Greeks and now the Romans, just terrible. And yet in the midst of that, Peter says to them, you need to repent and return so that the sins that you have committed are wiped away. Why do I need those sins gone? He doesn't talk about heaven. He talks about times of refreshment. He says when the presence of God enters into a place, there is this refreshment in our souls and in our spirits a refreshment in our minds because we see things from a different perspective. It strengthens us from day to day. It helps us to overcome. going to be bold <laughs> and just tell you a story. We had made friends when we were still living in England. Um, this was before I met Jan. I was living in England and we met some friends in Heidelberg and they came up to England and needed some real insight and help and 
pastor in the home of the assistant pastor of the church where I was uh, ministering and serving on this farm in England. And uh, uh, these two ladies and I, the pastor and his wife and their son, were in the living room and we had dinner together, had a nice discussion. And we thought before we break up, we'll just have a time of prayer. And while we were praying, I felt like uh, I ought to pray for the son. And so I just stood up and I said, John, stand up. And, and I started to pray for him. The mother got so excited about, about the things that I was praying over this young man. She leapt up from her chair and it was like she hit the presence of God. I seem to remember that she kind of twirled around and fell. What seemed like maybe a few minutes of amazement was actually well more than an hour that transpired in the presence of God. And when we all started to stir, we realized that we were all lying face down on the floor and none of us had our shoes on. <laughs> none of us had our shoes on. There was nothing to be said. We had been in the presence of the Lord. In an incredibly unusual moment. And God touched the depths of our hearts. And we all needed it. <laughs> I mean, we got up renewed and strengthened. We weren't tired. We hadn't slept. I, I don't know how to explain encounters like that. I don't really want to explain it. <laughs> I experienced it. Something happened. It's never happened before, since, you know, so, I, you know, don't don't look for something that's a phenomenon that God just, you know, uh, to be part of our normal Christian walk. It, that's not. God can do things, and he can <coughs> write history with you just as he, and he can show up in his presence any way he wants to if we're open to him. And when we encounter the presence of God, in this kind of a fashion, something happens on the inside of us that establishes us for the next series of whatever we're going through in life. It quickens us for, quicken means it gives life to us. It gives us, that's an old King James word, but it gives us life. It, it it restores us to the place where God intended us to be. 
to the people that God wants us to be. When God comes to meet with us, the things of this world that hold us down melt away in that kind of an encounter with the presence of God. For if repenting and returning brings those kinds of encounters, however God wants to meet with you, to prepare you for now and what lies ahead, you got to say, Lord, turn it off. Let's, let's turn from the things that would hinder us from having encounters in your presence. Now, I can't sit down and tell you how those encounters are going to be or what they look like because God chooses both the time, the place, the wherewithal, but he can still come to each one of us in his presence to bring a time of refreshing that he needs. And I start to compare that with the things of this world. They don't compare. Think about Jacob and his ladder to heaven. That doesn't compare. He was willing to face his brother and be killed if that was necessary after he had that encounter in the presence of the Lord. Throughout Scripture, we see something that happens when, when Paul encounters Jesus. He says, who are you? I don't know who you are. He says, well, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. That's who I am. He goes, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know. His life was radically changed with an encounter in the presence of the Lord. There's something holy, pure, righteous, good in the presence of the Lord. And all of us need to take a look and say, Lord, I don't want anything to be a hindrance in my life to your presence being manifest both in me and through me, to others. What a challenge. This sermon is an incredible challenge because if you repent and return, not only will God wipe out your sins, sometimes we just stop there, but he goes on and says, but there's going to be times, time, plural, of refreshing. It's not just going to happen once, it's going to happen a lot. There are going to be times of refreshing presence of the Lord. That's why Jesus comes to us. The result of how we choose when we're encountered with this kind has not just eternal consequences, has consequences in our lives here and now. And we need to be aware of that. That the consequences are significant. The choices that we make are significant. Now this message is not just for the people that Peter spoke it to. It's for all who will listen. It's the word that continues to bear forth fruit across nations and across generations. It continues to bring people into the presence of God and to refresh them. As for me, 
in all the issues that I and my family struggle with, I still choose. I choose times of refreshing. And I I need to get into the presence of God so that those times of refreshing may occur. I pray you do too. And that all those who are listening, that you too, especially those on Facebook, that you too will experience times of refreshing in the presence of God. Father, as we close our service this morning, I pray that you, you, that we would have times of refreshing in your presence, that we would experience it where the world is is weighing us down, that in your presence we are lifted up, that where the world attacks us, that we find strength and victory in you, that where the world would try to place things upon us and tell us that it's not so, that we would rise above it knowing that in you is all truth and that we can find our confidence and our peace, our strength and our hope in you. We ask it in Jesus' name.